Okay, guys, so we're here to answer big skeptical questions. We're going to do um, episodes of this that are really tackling some of the big questions. Uh, so let's let's start off by introducing ourselves. Tell tell the audience who you are, what your credentials are, why are we talking to you guys in the midst of this conversation about skeptical questions? I'll start with you, Don. Yeah, my name is Dominic Doan, and uh, new here at Bayside, uh, Bayside Santa Rosa. Yeah. And then before this, 10 years in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in Portland, Oregon, Colorado Springs, we started a nonprofit called Pursuing Faith and a podcast called Pursuing Faith. And there we're engaging with some of these more difficult questions around doubt and deconstruction. How do we know God exists, science, et cetera? Love it. That's great. And you are uh, right now, you have a master's degree from Oxford, right? Yep. And you're studying, yep. you're doing, uh, what are you doing right now? What are you yeah, on? so I did my master's in 2012 at Oxford. And then right now I work on the dissertation for the PhD. Yeah. And it's in the area, some of the things we're touching on today, great. actually. Love it, love yeah. it. That's great. Okay. How many uh, how many degrees do you have from Oxford, Dina? Um, that would be zero. Oh, I'm so man. sorry. But you are yeah. a very educated person. So well, tell oh, us about you. you and why you're here, Dina. <laughs> so I work with our Thrive College students. Mm-hmm. And so basically I pastor the generation that's least likely to believe in God and most likely to have all of these questions and yeah. use them as reasons to not believe in Jesus. But personally, I grew up a pastor's kid, but mm-hmm. then majored in philosophy at a secular university. So I went through my own crisis of faith and sure. emerged with a yeah. lot of of questions, which sent me on a journey of just saying, I don't want to walk away from God just because of a question. Right. I want to walk away from God if I'm going to do it because there's no good answer to these questions. Mm-hmm. So that led me to study apologetics at Biola University and I have my master's degree from there. That's great. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Glad you're part of this. Uh, yeah. My name is Mark Clark. Grew up as a skeptic and, uh, uh, just started exploring a lot of these questions and ideas uh, as I became a Christian, started exploring, like, is the Bible legitimate and mm-hmm. historical and philosophical and psychological, all these things. And um, so I've always just been a curious person and uh, uh, planted a church, started a church um, uh, up in Canada in 2010 and actually built a lot of it around these questions. Week in and week out, I would try to preach and teach in a way that was answering skeptical questions for people. And then over time, people started actually bringing their skeptical friends because if you build a culture like that people start to show up and that's what happened and God did some really cool things uh and then I wrote a book 2017 called The Problem of God that answers a bunch of the questions that we're going to talk about in this uh series of podcasts and The Problem of Jesus as well more focused on Jesus and the gospels and all that which we'll get to as well so uh that's what I'm doing here mm. uh glad to be in this with you so we've got a whole bunch of questions that have that have come in we've asked the internet you know, what are you thinking about in regard to some of these skeptical things? And um, and so we're going to jump into these kind of topic by topic and try to do these in, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. We'll see how we do. Uh, so the first one right out of the gate is about the Bible. So that's what this episode is about, specifically about the Bible itself and how we can trust it. So one of the first question is, how can we actually trust the accuracy of the Bible given its age and various translations? So the Bible, of course, 66 books uh, written over the course of thousands of years by a whole bunch of different people. We have all kinds of different translations um, written in Hebrew, uh, uh, a little bit of Aramaic uh, in Daniel, and then Greek. So these three languages, it's all over the place. How can we, what are we doing here? How can we trust this thing, guys? So obviously tons of things we can talk about, but let's, let's jump into it. Start with Dina. 
I want to start by framing how this question appears on the internet because it's mm-hmm. very different than how it appears when scholars discuss this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. When you stumble on this question on the internet, it's like there's some secret about the Bible mm. that, that you didn't hear growing up in church. And that's, yes, right. that there's all these, you know, mistranslations of the Bible and mm-hmm. that it's been altered. And you kind of get this sense from the way the story, and I, I would call it a story, is spun, that there's this secret knowledge that if you just understood this about the Bible, you would throw away your Bible and right. never read it again. Right. So that's how it appears on the internet. Mm-hmm. But when you approach this from a scholarly perspective and you listen into how people who've dedicated their lives to asking and answering this question approach it, mm. it is a careful, long-burning conversation yeah. that people are well aware of. There yes. are scholars who are Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning it has no error, who are dedicated and they have studied this. And there are people on the other side of the aisle, like any good question, who've gone through the same studying process and have come to a different conclusion about the Bible. So I just want to tee it up by saying, be careful the way you're approaching this question. And if you're getting into it thinking, man, there's some secret knowledge I found about the Bible, to be honest, you're probably not on a place that's giving you the best information. So what about the secret knowledge I found on the Bible the other day? Though? Is it in the... <laughs> it's in the promises. Yeah, no, uh, so so that's that's a great that's a great way to start. So I was in this podcast a few years ago, and it was by these two two skeptics who had kind of deconstructed, you know, to your uh, expertise, uh, Dom. And um, they were like, hey, we know all the, you know, and so one of the podcasts we were talking, they said, you know, the, the Bible's full of these errors and, you know, translation issues and a bunch of stories. And... I said, well, no, actually, it doesn't even have a secret. In fact, in your Bible, it tells you exactly. when when there's like times when everyone's like, oh, you know, most scholars don't think this is real. Obviously, Mark uh, 16, uh, John chapter 8 are two of the, the big ones. And they're like, no, no, you know, everyone's trying to cover that up. And I literally held, it was during <laughs> COVID, I held my Bible up on the Zoom call and I put it on the camera and I'm like, look, right here, it says the earliest manuscripts did not contain this story. You know, the famous one, of course, is the woman caught in adultery. Right. Uh, and, and no preacher wants that out of their Bible. So they want, we want to make sure we keep that. <laughs> uh, but it literally says right above it, this probably didn't exist in the original manuscripts or right. whatever. And they were like, oh, and the, one guy actually said in the podcast, he said, if, if I had had a pastor that answered my questions the way that you are right now, I might have actually never left the church. Oh, man. Yeah, uh-huh. so it's so like, sad. so to your point, um, the Bible isn't trying to hide anything. It, it, it'll yeah. constantly tell you, or the word could have been this, or the original manuscript was this, or a coffee stain was on this, or whatever. Like, you can trust it, even though all the translations, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, these, they're just, they're word-for-word translations or meaning-for-meaning translations, the whole translation thing we could get into about what to trust and why to trust. But one thing you got to understand is when they're writing the Bible, I mean, you have scrolls that they're finding 500 years apart in completely different parts of the world Mm -hmm. where the book of Isaiah, for instance, is word Mm -hmm. for word exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't picture when these guys are translating these these scrolls, they're not just sitting around like, hey, Tommy, I'm going to translate this scroll in the dark and no one's going to, we'll just shoot it around. You know, when they talk about the scribes and the Pharisees, in the New Testament, it's because scribes were guys whose whole job was to literally do it word for word with two guys over their shoulder. And if they made a mistake, they would stop, they'd correct it. Three people would have to initial it and then it would move on. It had this like, this this authority because it was not being changed. Right. Mm-hmm. And people come up, oh, I think that was changed. 
it's actually crazy when, to your point, historians look at this, guys who run museums and go, the Bible is the most Mm -hmm. accurate, trustworthy thing that we could look at. Look at these scrolls and and it's trusted. I'll I'll get into a couple more examples of that later because there's a second question that comes back to this. But any opening comments from you on the accuracy? A couple years ago when when we were in London, we went to the British Museum and I saw this book there uh, called The Art of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And basically it shows over the centuries how the scribes copied scripture. And it was it was beautiful because not only are they painstakingly accurate with every letter, every space between every letter, every jot and tittle, as Jesus said, um, but they also saw it as an act of worship and an act of beauty. So in the margins of these Bibles, like hundreds and hundreds of years old, they're kind of penning their own interpretation of it as well, mm-hmm. adding some art to it. And I think to your point, you know, that that was so good about how the Bible, you know, these aren't new questions. The Bible is very true about the stories it's telling, but it tells these stories out of diverse countries and cultures and contexts and peoples. The Bible's the word of God, yes, but it is also the product of humans who penned the words uh, written by actual people and actual places and actual time. And that's not a secret. It's not like the Bible's trying to hide it. Um, So I wrote down a few verses here, Deuteronomy 31. It says, Moses wrote down the law, gave it to the Levitical priests or Jeremiah 36. While Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had given him, Baruch wrote them down on a scroll or Paul even, you know, first Corinthians. He's like, and you know, the rest I say, but not the Lord. So you have these interesting caveats in scripture where you see Yes, it's the word of God. Yeah, but I'm giving you my own advice yeah. here. I'm not saying this is what God thinks, but this is what Paul thinks right, on Tuesday right. night. Yeah. yeah, so you have ordinary people who are, you know, communicators of truth who are speaking and sharing, you know, what, what God's put on their heart. But in the process, God didn't erase their individual styles and personalities, uh, passions or intellect. So I, I think there's something, too, as well, when when Jesus says, or John 1 says, can, that can the I Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's this fleshiness, but also the Word being inspired. Yeah, Maybe. no, it's good. Just to just come back to what you're talking about, about the the, the personalities. Mm. I think that's important. So when, when I studied Greek in college, did Greek for three years, uh, and when you read like Luke, who is a very smart doctor, the Greek is like like true, like, beautiful in antiquity Greek. It's like, oh, you, it's like Shakespearean yeah. Greek. It's like, this is good stuff. You read First Peter, mm-hmm. and it's a fumbling kind of Greek fisherman. that would be written by a fisherman. <laughs> and it's fascinating to see the differences in the way they use the language, you know, to your point. Like, there's, there, it's, no scholar mm-hmm. just fumbles into this, and oh my goodness, like, there's real work being done and a real respect for what's going on. So the second question that's somewhat connected to all of this is this. Um, I'll start with you, Dom. Are there historical or scientific inaccuracies in the Bible? I think what you find in Scripture is you'll find the same story being told from a multitude of perspectives. Uh, you'll hear people like Bart Ehrman look to the resurrection, for example, like, see, the Gospel of Mark says this, or Matthew says this, or who went to the tomb first. But what you have in this is the same story, and I think more importantly, theological harmony between each of the Gospels. It's telling you the same thing about the nature of God, the heart of God, but it's from the perspective of different individuals, which I love that about Scripture. And so many times uh, what we think may be an inaccuracy, whether scientific or otherwise, you begin to peel back the layers and you discover, oh, there's some cultural things that are happening here that explain it. Or maybe, you know, there's a recent discovery that helps shed light on what they were saying. Um, But I think comparison, this is why I'm so glad there's four different 
Gospels because you're, mm-hmm. it's prismic in a sense. You're, you're seeing the same diamond but from a multitude of angles. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. Okay. Dina? I, I mean, I would say I would answer no because I believe that God inspired the Bible, the whole Bible, and I believe it's completely true. But I do think that a lot of times our interpretation yields historical and scientific inaccuracies. And so when it seems like there is a gap between what history says and what we believe the Bible says or what we think the Bible says and what science is saying, then I think we have to go back to examining first and foremost the Bible and say, with humility, am I approaching God's word and rightly dividing it? Am mm-hmm. I actually drawing out what the author, the original author and yeah. the inspirer mm-hmm. of scriptures, God himself, intended to communicate? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of the times, the things that we draw out of scripture, those are not what God is trying to communicate. And mm-hmm. that's what yields those inaccuracies. That's such an so, important point. So-called inaccuracies. Oh, man. Because, I mean, you look at the way that people have used the Bible throughout history mm-hmm. to justify messed up things. So exactly. The Civil War using it to mm-hmm. justify slavery or nations using it to justify unjust wars or yep. people in weird communes um, using mm-hmm. it to justify polygamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there has to be that, that sense of humility as we approach the text because I think often we'll look at it kind of a – maybe a psychology 101 version of an inkblot way. And, yeah. and, and an inkblot is like you, you see it and then the first thing that comes to your mind kind of says it's something about your psychology. And and we all approach the Bible to some degree, yeah. let's face it, through through that inkblot way. Um, but if we approach it with humility first and foremost, mm-hmm. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble mm-hmm. with the spirit of prayer, an open heart, a listening heart. Lord, what is this actually saying? Critique me. We often want to uh, critique it. Yeah. Um, and exegete it, but what if it wants to exegete us first? Right. Yeah. So that is a pivotal point, yeah. I think. So totally. when it comes back to some of these uh, science or historical inaccuracies, so you're alluding to the resurrections, obviously, so let's, let's dig into that one for or, or the concept of people saying, well, there's passage in the Bible, you know, the airman stuff, you know, are there, so Matthew says there's this many angels and John says there's this many. And so I, let, me, let me give a couple of examples of how to answer some of that. So first off, if there are, you know, you know, the Matthew or whomever it was that says there's one angel is actually just telling us that one angel talked. He's not necessarily saying how many angels were there. Right. Whereas the other author is telling us there was two. So was there two? There's probably two. And where there's two, there's one. And so there's... <laughs> right. it's there's not a good contradiction. Yeah, it's, it's not a good contradiction. So um, the other thing, you know, N.T. Wright points this out in his big 800-page book on the resurrection to come back to your airman point about the, the uh, potential inaccuracies. He actually uses it as a legitimization mm-hmm. of the resurrection story. So, so N.T. Wright's argument is the opposite almost. He says, let's say two of these gospels not contradict each other, but certainly raise the question of whether there's, there's like, wait a minute, Luke said this, but Mark said, hold on. Mm-hmm. And N.T. Wright actually goes, the, that actually brings legitimacy from a scholarly standpoint, because if you were creating a religion— and you wanted to make sure that your pivotal story was going to get out there. Right. You'd all get in a room and you'd make dead sure that <laughs> every single detail was on point. Right. So we're creating a religion. Okay, Dom, how many angels are going to be there? Mm-hmm. Two? Okay, you're yeah. two, two, two. I'm going two. If you go one, you're going to screw this whole <laughs> right. thing up. Yeah. Two, two, two. And the fact that there's like these... Like you were talking this this angle. I saw the car accident from this angle, but mm. it was a red car. It was a blue car. There's a bit of that discrepancy. Yeah. Actually, when a scholar looks at it, goes, this makes me trust it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not that there's full-on contradictions, yeah. but there's things that aren't perfectly in line. And from a scholar, I would actually uh, elevate it. So 
Now, one more example of that, uh, John chapter 5, of course, um, you have the Pool of Siloam story, and people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not believe in the Bible anymore because this, this pool was never found, and this is a made-up story, and J- John's a bad historical document. You know, and of course, Craig Blomberg and others have written books about the historical reliability of, of John. You know, John, people forget, is the only reason we know Jesus' ministry lasted three years. If you just read the synoptics, mm. you'd think it was like a year. Right. John says he went to three different Passovers, which is why we know. And so people beat up John, mm. and they think it's all esoteric and whatever, but he actually has all these historical things. So everyone dropkicked their Bible, there's no pool, and then years later, the archaeologists went and they found the exact pool exactly as John describes it, and so you have these hundreds of years of people at these universities that went, I don't believe in the Bible, and then archaeology dug a little deeper and went, oh, shoot, that actually is there, Uh, you know, and so now, and the Bible over and over and over again is shown to be legitimate. Um, So I got this one line, you got, of course, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is into details and he's into history, which is why you almost have like a, a the evidence of boredom, I like to call it. <laughs> those those verses where you get really bored in the Bible are the ones that are legitimizing the Bible because mm-hmm. they're like, remember, like every yep. Christmas, people get up and they, what do the kids read, right? Yeah. When Quirinius yes. was the governor <laughs> of Syria, it's like, bro, no put cares. me to bed. But that yeah. alone is saying, I'm rooting this in history. This is right. not reading like a fable or a myth. And so yeah. there's this uh, one data here. In the end, between the Gospel of Luke and the, and the Book of Acts, Luke identified 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. Mm. Right? Yeah. So when people, and that's just, there's like a bunch of data, you know, that you could look into. But the, these guys are really trying to do good history, good geography. Yep. You know, any, any, any other and content? Their, yeah, their honesty, just in the way they wrote it, uh, to your point of there, there's integrity and authenticity there that if you're inventing a religion, yes. it would look quite a bit different. You wouldn't have one of the pillars of the early church, Peter, you know, being depicted in the way that he was, yes. sinking when he should have been walking and sleeping when he should have been praying and being told, get behind me, Satan. Like, right. that doesn't look good on your resume. Yes. Um, but the fact that they depict these guys in their flaws or weaknesses and brokenness as leaders, that gives, I think, a, a further degree of authenticity. And, um, you know, Keller points points this out, too, that you wouldn't have in that culture, back to the resurrection, um, women mm-hmm. playing such a vital role. Being the first witnesses. Be- being the right. first witnesses, because they're, they're considered second-class citizens in yeah. first century Rome. Their word, their word meant nothing in a, in a court of law. Yeah. Yet, they're, when you read the story of the resurrection, it's all about them. They're the first ones there. They're the first ones to believe. They're the first ones to let the disciples know that he's alive. They're the heroes of the story. And uh, Keller, he said, these things would have only offended or deeply confused first century yeah. prospective converts. The only plausible reason that all of these incidents would be included included in these accounts is that they actually happen. So I think the beauty is found actually in in the mess of the Bible. The authenticity is found in the way it's written. I think this is probably a good point to to pause and say that like, if you're listening, these are three people that love to study. Mm. We we love the challenge Mm. of these questions and we love the process of studying and going and chasing down good answers. Some people don't. Some people want to hop on the internet and find an easy answer. And if if that is you, I just want to encourage you and say, this is a hard process, Mm. but I wonder if we can weigh in and give some good voices because the internet is, you know, Google's not always reliable in terms of what it says. So what are some good voices we can listen to that speak to biblical reliability for someone who 
wants to chase down the answer, yeah. but doesn't want to spend, doesn't want to go to Oxford and find the answer. Yeah, I mean, you, me- you mentioned uh, Craig Blomberg. He, yeah, he's incredible. Your, your book's amazing. Tim Keller is really good. Yeah. Uh, there's one I saw at the conference this last week, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth mm-hmm. uh, by Gordon Fee, I believe. That's actually a really, really good That's place to begin. They'll so kind of introduce you to some of these thinkers around these issues. N.T. Wright, of course. That's right. Okay, so the other the other question that's being asked here is, can the Bible's teachings be reconciled with modern ethical and moral standards? Mm. Yes. So this is this is something yeah. that comes in. This is probably some of the hottest stuff on the internet in regard to why we can't trust the Bible. Um, the Bible is outdated in its in its moral ethical. Like the, the, here's here's such an interesting. Let me frame it this way: such an interesting mm. cultural shift that has taken place is this. Mm-hmm. In the 50s or whatever, yeah. you know, just choose your kind of classic, stereotypical, conservative, traditional era. Mm-hmm. Uh, your Bible-believing Christian home that goes to church every Sunday, mm-hmm. you are seen as uh, uh, boring, um, certainly not radical. Mm-hmm. You, you, you believe boring things. And then there's a revolutionary spirit that's out there fighting that. Mm-hmm. paradigm of old school traditional thought mm-hmm. now to believe in the bible is culturally right. seen as uh dangerous mm-hmm. it's now offensive to be that leave it to beaver family yeah. who goes to church every sunday and believes their bible because to believe those things is pushing back against some of the cultural beliefs about a whole litany of issues. Yeah. So this is now, the whole, the whole script has been flipped. Right. Mm-hmm. To say you believe certain biblical things is now the revolution, right. in a sense. It's the scary thing. It's the, well, careful, you can't say that kind of thing. And so this is where this question gets born out of. There are things the Bible teaches that, do they even line up with modern, the way they put it, modern ethical and moral standards. So let's talk about this. Go ahead. Um, So I I think even this term modern is an interesting place to start. Maybe this is even stepping back a little more. (laughs) But like when you look at the birth of modernism, I mean, this happened at a time when the world is undergoing a seismic redefinition of the human story. Mm -hmm. Like you have Copernicus redefining our sense of place, Mm -hmm. uh, the Reformation redefining our sources of authority, Darwin redefining our beginnings, Nietzsche redefining our destiny. And like by the 19th century, everything we knew or thought we knew about the world has changed. Mm -hmm. But here's the interesting thing. Even though everything is suddenly turned upside down and chaotic, there's this inbuilt longing, I think, that may or may not be good, but for order and control. Like Charles Taylor, he he talks about this this imperious desire we all have to make sense of the world, to try and find a unified meaning in it. Mm -hmm. But where I'm going with this is like in a chaotic world... So the birth of modernism, where do we go? Mm-hmm. And one option is submission to the authority and control of God. Mm-hmm. Another is you impose your own control on others. And I think this is what we see happen with exactly. the birth of modernism yep. is this this desire uh, to control. So we want to control the environment. We become industrial. We want to control populations. We develop cities. We want to control nations. So we develop nuclear bombs, right? So it's power, order, control. And I think 
oftentimes what lies behind questions such as these and the, the previous one too is we approach the Bible as if it were some specimen in a lab mm -hmm. that we want to control and dissect and organize. Um, not Again, not saying there's anything wrong with systematic theology or all that. I think that's really helpful. But the problem is the Bible doesn't always fit into our boxes. Right. It's awkward and wild and messy and volatile. And when you think you've got it figured out, um, it does something unpredictable. And so to that point, like, okay, the ethical issues. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm skeptical of the skeptic who's asking that question mm -hmm, because sure. uh, what about all the sex and violence in the Bible, they might say, but the same people have no problem watching Game of Thrones or right. whatever. Right. Like, but the key difference is while culture will glorify these things, mm -hmm. the Bible actually in its redemptive art pushes back on these things mm -hmm. and ultimately leads us. It's a cautionary table. table. People do these things. They're messed up. And honestly, the more you read the Bible, the more you learn of human nature, the more you study history, we are not any different. Yeah, let, let's let's dig into it as an example. That's really good. As an example of that. So um, to your point about polygamy, people say, well, look at look at Genesis, look at these guys, look at these patriarchs, these, these heroes of the faith, and they're all, you know, yeah, they all got, you know, a hundred wives and they're this and that. Whatever. And they were all miserable. <laughs> and they, yeah, well, and, and this is the argument. And so, so... Um, you have the scholar Robert Alter who wrote this book called The Art of Biblical Narrative, mm -hmm. uh, Old Testament scholar, and he's a, he's a Jewish thinker. And he talks about the idea that, exactly your point, you have, uh, the, while the narrative doesn't stop and say, now Abraham took many, and he was bad, and God did not like this. It, it, it also shows, as he talks about, mm -hmm. the, the, the ruin of his life. Mm -hmm. And when David's taking all these women the, the destruction that it's doing to him. The narrative certainly isn't stopping giving you ethical guidelines and morals and seven-point mm -hmm. sermons, but over the course of the narrative, you're seeing that these guys are having a terrible time of it, and and it's it's this pushback against the cultural norms. And he uses polygamy and primogeniture, which is, you know, the, I'm going to make my oldest son get everything. Mm -hmm. And Robert Alter says, every time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where that opportunity is given, that the Bible throws it, upside down and says, actually, I'm going to give it to the, yeah. I'm going to give it to, you know, Jacob, Don Esau, Isaac, all of this. And so it's all, it's constantly throwing these cultural things away and saying, I know that you give everything to your firstborn, but every time God's going to choose someone, he's going to choose the youngest. Mm -hmm. And I know you culturally in the ancient Near East, you can take a bunch of wives. Yeah. So I'm not stopping and doing commentary every time it happens. But if you read the story, and we're bad readers of story, to your point, mm -hmm. yeah. we're looking for systematic theology when the Bible's giving us theology, but it's giving it to us in narrative. Mm -hmm. right. And when we're good readers of story, we're like, oh my goodness. So then right, I read the other morning in my chapter, Day Keeps the Devil Away, 2024, First Kings and David's dying. And you're reading this story and Bathsheba is there <sighs> and she's like still young. And like, hey, man, I thought you were going to put our kid up on oh, this. They're only your other kids from other, some broad. And she's going on. Disaster. And it's a disaster. And you realize he's dying. Like, and he's dying. And you're like, he's, he's lost his mind. This is, this is, what is happening? And then, and then he redeems it at the end. He says, mm -hmm. this was going But you're like, you're reading the story and you're supposed to see this isn't the way God wants it. Yes. He doesn't want slavery. He doesn't right. want primogeniture to be, he doesn't want polygamy, he doesn't want these things, but you got to be a good reader of story to be able to get there because it's not going to stop and give you systematic theology. Okay. That's so good. But then there are times where um, in scripture, what is said and what God's ethic is does absolutely conflict with the cultural norm yes. of today. And so um, I teach ethics to our Thrive College students. And I just one thing I want to point out is a lot of people are not aware of what the dominant cultural ethic is today. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's probably one of two things. One is 
something called egoism. So meaning like whatever I decide is right, I look inside of myself and I have that power, that control to define what right and wrong is. I do it. So that's egoism. And that that is a disaster because if you're a slave owner and you look inside of yourself and you define that that is what is right, according to egoism, you are right. And then the other is something called emotivism, which is just that there's no truth or falsity as regards um, ethics. So it's just what everyone wants to do. And both of these, culturally speaking, are absolute disasters in terms of an actual ethical code that can lead society to a good place. So before we critique the biblical ethic, I think we have to critique our cultural ethic and really become aware of whether the ideas that we're absorbing from culture are actually good ideas rather than just tossing out what scripture says. Mm. So, And to that, I would say this is is an ancient text, regardless of what you believe about it. This is an ancient text for Mm. thousands upon thousands of years that people have considered to hold some of the best ethical guidelines for humanity and society's flourishing. Wouldn't it be smart of us to consider them carefully instead of tossing them out because they disagree with what we look inside ourselves and find to be true on any given day? Yeah, and ethics isn't just some principle. It's it's a person. Like That is ultimately why I trust the Bible because it's Jesus. Like yeah. It's the Emmaus Road. He's with his disciples. He walks them through Scripture, which I imagine being a part of that Bible study, um, and shows them how these things ultimately are pointing to him. Like Jesus Jesus is the hope. He's the fact. He's the purpose. He's the trajectory. He's the promise. He's the fulfillment. It's it's all about him. And not only that, Jesus loved the Bible. He memorized it. He quoted from it. He taught from the Bible. So yeah. it's the Bible that Jesus read and Jesus trusted. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's that's why I trust it because I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah. And there are parts of it that are messy. There are parts yeah. that are hard to understand. There are parts I still have a bucket in my brain that has a big question mark <laughs> on it. Good. Like I don't, I don't get this. Yeah. I see through a glass dimly. Mm-hmm. Hopefully someday face to face. But I'm trusting Jesus at the end of the day. So to come back to your point, Dina, about cultural, there's cultural ethics Mm -hmm. that I think a good conversation, if you were sitting across someone for coffee and you were having this debate and they came with this kind of question, to your point, let's draw it back a little bit to the cultural moment we're in. Make sure that you're not just being a product of the cultural moment and reading the teleprompter that of, of ideas that are going to be useless in five years or contradictory now. Uh, you know, think of the ideas of your grandparents and what they believed about stuff. It's laughable. Well, that's you in 40 years. Absolutely. And all these ideas that you have about judging God and the Bible on this and that, whatever, it's going to be useless in 40 years when you're like, oh, I don't believe that anymore. So be careful. Um, and so one of the, one of those ideas is how many of your ideas are contradictory? So I was, I was in my, the book that I'm writing right now, uh, that's going to come out sometime, um, next year, probably this, you know, early next year, I, I wrote this and it just to this point, a contradiction of, of worldviews, for instance, this is exactly the view of many of my non-Christian friends who through college made fun of my belief in God. And yet at the same time, were staunch environmentalists. Mm-hmm. God doesn't exist. They said, but we are morally obligated to protect the earth from the capitalist power structures who rape and pillage it for profit. Mm-hmm. Well, I see why they felt this. It is a contradictory logic. For as the writer Kristen Burkett points out, it is not only humanity that fails to matter if there's nothing more than the natural world. Ironically, the natural world ceases to matter as well. If everything in the world is simply a collection of atoms and molecules, it's simply the case that some of us like our collections of atoms in the form of trees and meadows. Others prefer cars and fuel, but who's to say which is better? 
Mm-hmm. In other words, without an organizing principle behind the universe, there's no authority to say one way is better than the other. If the individual is the authority, then individual opinion rules. If one person wants to shut down SeaWorld and save the trees and another wants to empty the oceans of shark and whales for soup, who is to say which is more noble? Right. If there is no God, no transcendent reality that enchants the world beyond our senses, then no one can or should decide these things. Mm. That's the that's the conversation we need to be having across the coffee table. Don't come at me mm-hmm. with the Bible like slaves. Let's stop for a second. First off, I'm going to explain to you that it doesn't. Right. But before we get there, let's go back and ask, why do why, you not yeah, like why slaves? Are you against yeah. If there's no God, if you're coming from a place of pure skepticism and this is just man eat man, Mm-hmm. Dog eat dog. Let's get on with it. So let's get, and so much of our conversation needs to draw back upstream a little bit Absolutely. and start to ask those, some of those more fundamental foundational questions. Yeah. And it's where we get into the existence of God uh, yeah. conversation, yeah. which I'm excited to have. Yeah. But um, w- when we critique the more quote unquote morality of the Bible, whose morality? Right. Yes, exactly. 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 Yep. Where do we get that sense of morality from? Yep. It's great. Dina, last word on this. Okay. Last word on this Last word is, on the whole topic of the Bible. Okay. As you draw back to the original thing we said, you're going to stumble on this idea that the Bible is unreliable and it's going to be a seductive idea. I just want you to know that there is no one who has read the Bible that doesn't come from a particular viewpoint. Mm. Yes. So you are listening to Mark, Dina, and Dom, and we have approached Scripture through our lens. You're going to read a different skeptic, and they're going to approach it through a different lens. The important thing is to know what um, what is your answer to these two fundamental questions? Is there a God, and has the has He spoken? Yes. Does the God of the universe, if He exists, want to be known? Because if so, you are going to chase the answer to this question: Is the Bible reliable in a completely different way? Yeah. So the person who's a skeptic who is just looking for problems in the Bible, odds are they've already answered that question for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, even Bart Ehrman, the, the skeptic that you quoted, he admitted that his problems with the Bible were actually born out of seeing that there probably was no God because of all the evil and suffering in the world. Yeah. So chase down the answers to the questions, is there a God and has he spoken? Because as you do that, you will find so much merit in considering the Bible as God's revelation, his true word. Yeah. That's great. Okay, guys, thanks for the conversation. Very good. Hopefully this has been helpful for you.